Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the self-driving office edition of Sleep Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon. I have Anna Shemansky right here as well. And we have the one and only Meredith Roussard. Welcome. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Meredith, you are a professor at NYU, and you've written a book. I have. The book is called Artificial Unintelligence, How Computers Misunderstand the World. Meredith was introduced to Slate Money by Kathy O'Neill, who wrote a slightly less technical book, which was along the same lines. But this this one, if you're interested in artificial intelligence, Meredith knows more or less everything there is to know about artificial intelligence. So we're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about cars. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence and cars. And we're also just going to talk about cars generally, because there's some news out from Ford. They're basically going to stop making cars, which is kind of amazing. And for anyone who didn't listen to Anna Shemansky's rant about Tesla debt a few weeks ago in the Slate Plus segment, we're going to basically reprise that, (laughs) because WeWork has issued debt, and we are are so here for that. It's going to be fun. But let's start with Meredith, um, your book is an explanation of artificial intelligence, like how we got to where we are and what it is, and also a skeptical take on it. And have like there's a bunch of hype about AI, and there's a lot of talk about how AI people are, you know, making multi-million dollar salaries everywhere they go. And you're saying, yeah, maybe there's not quite as much there there as we thought. Well, I am a uh, I am a a skeptic. Um, I started my career as a computer scientist, and then I quit to become a journalist. So I've always been deeply invested in kind of plain language explanations for complex technical topics. And as I got further into uh, looking at AI and looking at the hype around AI, I started to realize that there's a lot of snake oil being sold. And specifically, 
the bit of AI which people are most sort of excited about right now is self-driving cars, right? That's the that's like the I mean people get, you know, you can look at headlines about chess and go and stuff like that and it's great. You found a computer it can play chess. But the thing which has the potential to transform the planet and save millions of lives is self-driving cars and you don't think that's going to happen? I am going to make a bold statement, which is that I think self-driving cars are a terrible idea. I think they're going to kill people. Uh, I think that people are overestimating how uh, how fantastic self-driving cars could potentially be. Yeah, I really agree with you. I think you did a really good job in the book at just kind of debunking a lot of the hype. I, I think I especially enjoyed when you mentioned that statistic that everybody quotes that like 95% of auto deaths are caused by humans. And you're like, what else would they be caused by? Humans are the ones driving. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I, I think that the, uh, the topic is very much in the news nowadays because of the, uh, crash in Tempe, Arizona, when a self-driving Uber car, uh, struck a woman and killed her on the street. And, uh, there was also another death, uh, in California, a man was driving a Tesla on autopilot and it just crashed into the highway divider. And these are the things that self-driving cars do because self-driving cars are uh, powered by computers and all of the dumb stuff that your own laptop or your own phone does, that's exactly the same hardware and software that's inside a self-driving car. And so it's a two-ton killing machine that's going to make the same kind of so, doping mistakes your computer okay, does. Okay, so I'm going to come, I'm going to take the, the other side of this just because someone has to. Um, we have a bunch of complete morons driving these two-ton killing machines already, and they are causing tens of millions of deaths. It's like this epidemic of road deaths is is global, and most of them are avoidable in one way or another. Um, surely the question is not whether self-driving cars will kill people. It's more whether they will kill people less frequently than humans do. Uh, yeah, that is a very good question. Uh, any answer to it is highly speculative. Sure. So what, so I guess my question is like, do you believe that number one, self-driving cars will never happen or that they, they will never really exist? But more to the point, do you believe that we will never reach the point at which a self-driving car is say, an order of magnitude safer than the same car being driven by a human. Well, that's a that's a really uh, that's a good question. Um, what I would say is that there's a difference between what we can do, technologically speaking, and what we should do, technologically speaking. So we can look at uh, the atomic bomb, for example. Uh, we it's the it's the same. Uh, the same people coming out of the same intellectual tradition who uh, invented the atomic bomb and then invented computers after they uh, after they left the Manhattan Project, they went over it and you know started working on ENIAC and started working on the IAS machine, and uh, those are the grandparents of the uh, of the technologists who we have today. Um, so what they realized after they built the atomic bomb was, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And so I think we have the opportunity right now with self-driving cars to look at our history and look at the history of the way we've used technology and say, hey, 
just because we can do something doesn't mean that we should do it. So what's the argument that we shouldn't do it? The argument that we shouldn't do it is that the people who are making self-driving cars are overstating the case for safety. Right. It does seem like a lot of the technology that is currently being used is really problematic that the like LIDAR sensors don't work well in snow, rain, and when there's dust, which seems like pretty much everywhere, that people think that this is magic, that tech is so much better than humans. But many of these, you know, kind of, I think you call them like techno chauvinists, they seem to think that humans are really bad at pretty much doing everything. However, humans are the ones creating the tech, the ones writing the algorithms, but somehow they're all perfect once they're inside the car. Right. When you're a techno chauvinist, you say what you're really doing when you say the tech is better than people is you're really saying that the tech I invent is better than people because I am better than you. No, I mean, I think that's not to go on another Tesla rant, but Elon Musk, part of the reason that he's having some of these problems is because he's designed a um, factory where it's almost all robots. He wanted to try to limit the number of people as much as possible. And he's found that's actually less effective. It's causing more problems. But because he thought, well, I know better. I can do everything so much better than anyone else. So let's just grant for the sake of argument that you're right and that the current state of self-driving technology is not quite what it's cracked up to be. Although, frankly, I'm not sure how cracked up it is. You know, there's there's not a lot of it out there. And as you discovered yourself, there isn't a huge amount of people showing it off and, and talking about how wonderful it is today. The The real question here, it seems, seems to me, is not like, where are we at today? It's, does it make sense to extrapolate where we've come from in terms of um, driving automation and sort of take that line and follow it through and say, well, in a certain number of years, these cars are going to be able to do A, B, and C because, like, just look how far we've come in the past few years. Or should we instead look at the shortcomings self-driving cars have today and say, well, because they have these shortcomings today, they're a dangerous technology and we shouldn't invest more in this technology? I think we should do uh, we should do both things. We can look at how far we've come and we can look at how far we have yet to go. But then we also need to look at the fundamental limits of computing. So like, let's look at something like computer vision. Okay. Um, right now, we have uh, image recognition algorithms that are inside self-driving cars that can recognize a stop sign because we've fed in a lot, a lot of pictures of stop signs. So there's this principle called the unreasonable effectiveness of data, uh, which is the principle that allows uh, machine learning to help com- to uh, be employed so that computers can recognize stop signs. Now, if you put in enough pictures of stop signs, the computer will eventually say, oh, yeah, that's a a thing that I recognize. But it turns out that when you uh, gently manipulate a picture of a stop sign, the image recognition stops working. So uh, some researchers uh, took some very, very crude tools, uh, like a, uh, you know, the spray paint tool in, uh, you know, Microsoft Paint program or whatever. And I uh, 
and manipulated the pictures of stop signs and then ran the image recognition algorithms against them, and the image recognition algorithms totally failed. So basically, if somebody were to go around the world like putting sparkly unicorn stickers onto stop signs, then self-driving cars would not recognize them as stop signs, and then they would drive through them, and then they would cause an accident. So these kinds of things are very, very common inside uh inside image recognition technology. What, like and sparkly I th- people going around putting sparkly unicorns on, on stop signs? I feel like that's, I mean, there's a bunch of ways to cause cars to have accidents and to cause crashes. And you can do that right now with human drivers. And I'm sure you can do it in other ways with robot drivers. But I'm not sure that's an argument against self-driving cars. I guess I guess the question which I'm trying to get at here is like, why are, is, is, are you saying that we should stop um, investing in this technology just like we should have stopped investing in the nuclear bomb because like the outcome is going to be super harmful? Is that your case? That is. And if that's your case, what is it that yeah, without talking about like today's technology, like uh, allowing for extrapolation here, why why is it what what is the difference that you have with the AI people and the AI you know who are saying, well, we might not be there yet, but we have improved a lot over the past few years, and we will continue to improve, and that eventually the cars we produce are going to be much safer than the same cars driven by a human, and that's going to be a good thing. Well, so that's really the essence of techno-chauvinism, I think. The idea that, oh, just because we did this one thing, we can do this other thing, and therefore we should go do the other thing. Um, it is sometimes reasonable to say, yes, because I uh, I did something, then yes, I can improve and get better at it. Um, but in the world of computing, there are fundamental limits. There are things that humans can do that machines can't do. So humans have, uh, humans can make judgment calls. Humans can form, uh, emotional attachments that are protective. So let's say that there's a self-driving car and, uh, it careens out of control and there's a bunch of kids standing at the corner at a bus stop. Please don't, I don't want to go into a trolley problem. <laughs> like, like, you know, at some point, you know, you, we have to go a little bit more sophisticated in trolley problems. However, I do think it's important to remember that someone is going to have to program these cars. And so they are going to have to consider the trolley problem in a way that's not just a bunch of people sitting around in a class talking about it, but actually thinking if a car does a car prioritize the passenger, does a car prioritize someone outside? And that actually will be something people would have to decide. They've actually decided it in different ways. So like, for example, a self-driving Mercedes is programmed to save the driver, not the people outside. I, I think that's problematic because as a human being, if I'm making the decision, do I hit a tree or do I hit a bunch of school children? I'm going to hit the tree because young lives are precious. Yeah. And I do think that when you, when you get into an issue where someone outside of the situation has to you know, make a decision that will affect so many people, it it becomes a much more than just a theoretical exercise. And another thing that I think is important that you, I think you're bringing up is the actual limits potentially of technology, because I think we're at a moment right now where we treat people in tech like alchemists, like there are no limits, they can do anything. And I think you try to point out that that's not really necessarily true. And so, I, yeah, so I think this is the 
the the key thing that we're coming to. You're saying that for all the advances that we have made in self-driving cars, we are going to run into hard limits, and those hard limits are going to come sooner rather than later, and they're going to prevent us from creating cars which are an order of magnitude safer, even after accounting for things like trolley problems. I mean, basically, it seems to me that what you're saying is that self-driving car is unlikely or to to be that much safer precisely because um you know it's going to wind up driving into a bunch of school kids or something like that yes um i think that also uh one of the things that i that i read about in the book is the way that there are uh many many unintended consequences in technology so what we've seen in uh the history of uh you know, development of the internet over the past several decades is that the people who uh, invent technological innovations are like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is going to save the world. It's going to change everything. It's going to be so much better. And then there are all of these social problems that come up that actually make things worse. So like every time there's a new technological innovation, people use it for genealogy and for porn. And the the people who are inventing it, they they like never realize this. They're always surprised when the uh, when the invention gets abused, and so we can we can stop being surprised by that, and we can say, all right, well, self driving cars, like, how are they going to uh, cause more problems in society? Uh, in addition to solving a couple of problems, which honestly, like, I don't really think that they're problems. Like before, I. Uh, before cell phones, uh, safety innovations in cars were working really well. The number of uh, vehicle deaths was on a, uh, a decline for many years. And then uh, around, I think, 2006, um, you started seeing an uptick in uh, uptick in distracted driving accidents and deaths. And it's because people are texting while driving and using their cell phones while driving. And it takes about 25 seconds for your uh, for your brain to get back into driving after you consult your phone. So using your phone for directions or uh, using your phone to text while driving, even though it's illegal in many states, people still do it. And particularly uh, problematic is the way that young drivers are texting while driving and being distracted while driving. So if you uh, if you look at the stats on who is being killed in these accidents, it's you know, teenagers uh, are uh, the number of teenagers who have died and been injured in distracted driving accidents has skyrocketed. So we are causing problems with technology. And, you know, maybe one of the things we need to do in order to reduce the number of deaths from cars is we need to put in better technology to keep people from using their phones in cars. And I think this is really important that it isn't just a matter of saying like, oh, you know, we should just give up on R&D and tech is all bad. It's not. And I, I know you're obviously not saying that. It's I love more, technology. Yeah. It's more this idea of like, how are we using our resources, both, you know, monetary and, and humans as well? Like to like, what are we researching? What are we trying to do instead of focusing on what are some technological advances we could use now to actually make the cars we have now significantly safer? Instead, we're focusing a lot of energy on kind of a moonshot that may not even be what we want at the end. So there is an issue here of always thinking that taking away humans entirely is going to be the best, the ultimate solution, as opposed to thinking, well, maybe the best solution will be to actually have a much more automated car, 
but with a human still behind the wheel that can make some of those decisions. The, the problem with that is that the more automation you have, the more naturally complacent the driver becomes. The less, jo- the less work that the driver has to do, the less attention they pay. And that's, and that's probably a fair point. And I think that if cars do continue to become more and more automated, I think the way people drive, the way people are taught to drive is probably going to have to change. But it's kind of like the idea of a plane. You know, planes are essentially right now driverless cars that we've had for a while. We still have pilots and they probably have to do less than a driver would have to do because they have less that they're going to have to deal with. But they have learned to fly those planes in a much different way. And I think people will have to learn to drive cars in a different way. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Okay, so let's let's talk about Ford, who are also building a fleet or trying to build a fleet. That like like all of the big car manufacturers, they are investing in um, this kind of technology. But at the same time, we discovered this week they are disinvesting massively in cars, and this absolutely fascinates me. And I think this is made much smaller news than it should have done. But basically, Ford has now come out and said. We are going to stop making cars, which is kind of enormous. Just to be clear, they are still making vehicles. (laughs) So Ford, it turns out, is basically a massively profitable um, subsidiary, which makes F-150 pickup trucks, which are the top-selling vehicle in America every year for, I think, the past 30 years or something crazy like that. And it's just like this license to print money. And then they make other things, including good old-fashioned cars like Focuses and Fiestas and all of those kind of things. And those don't make money. And so the new CEO comes in and he says, well, we should make the things which make money and not make the things which don't make money. And what that means is no more Ford cars. Everything that Ford makes is going to be, and this is how I was thinking about it, is going to be basically a gendered, like masculine thing. It's going to be a pickup truck or it's going to be one of those big high suvs which allows you to like dominate the road and see over oh, and the mustang and the mustang, and, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. The mustang. But, it's the one car it's going to continue to make but also crossovers and i will say that when you talk about the reason why people have been shifting towards trucks and suvs and crossover vehicles it is not just about it is yes partly you know men in their trucks but it's also women who want to feel safer in their cars and whether these larger cars are actually safer is very debatable, but people feel safer in them. So you actually hear a lot of women in surveys say they do not want small cars with their kids because they don't feel safe, especially when all the other cars on the road are big cars. But there are. But the fact is that Americans do still buy millions and millions of cars. They also buy and, about twice as many trucks. <laughs> right, sure. But the car market is a big market and it is dominated by Japanese cars. It's Corollas and Acuras and all of that kind of stuff. And so the question which I have is, why is it that, you know, the Camry is such a profitable business line to be in, but no American car manufacturer seems to be able to play in that space? Well, I think since, you know, the 
80s and 90s where when Japanese car makers really started to gain far more market share, partly because they were making better cars, that ever since then, the U.S. has kind of always been playing catch up. And the U.S. has had other problems they have to deal with in terms of legacy costs with pensions and healthcare, But they've just never quite been able to dominate the market since the really rise of Japanese cars. And today, many people will say who are car people that a lot of American cars are just as good as the Japanese cars, but people don't think that. People still assume that Japanese cars are better. You know, I wonder if some of it is psychological, too, because when you think about, oh, I want to get a reliable, dependable car that is going to keep uh, some resale value, you immediately think of the Toyota Camry. Like that is just the the iconic car that you think of. And you're like, well, it's a sedan and it's going to last forever. And then I can unload it. And you see a lot of them on the road. And then when you think, all right, I want a safe car, you think Volvo. Uh, and, uh, if you think I want a, uh, I want a car that I can like put my kayak on the top of it, you think Subaru Outback. No, I mean, I, and those are not American cars. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I do think that perception is very important and people buy the types of things that they see other people around them buying. And because we've had such a long period of time now where, as I've said, Japan has dominated the market, that is simply what you think when you think of cars. And also, I think the U.S., the big three, I mean, the big three do still have you know more market share overall in vehicles, but they've been focusing more of their attention on the things that are selling. So that's, I think, another reason is they're not going to just keep pumping money and money and money into a segment of the market where they're just, as I've said, always playing catch up. So the obvious question is, if and when gas prices go back up again, um, is this going to mean a, a really nasty come to Jesus moment for American car manufacturers, given that they're not even going to have any cars anymore? Um, or is it the case as Ford claims that the difference in gas mileage between cars and like the bigger things that they make has now come down enough that it's not going to be that big of a deal. Well, I think the other issue is a company like Ford, although they are, you know, not going to be making cars, they are focused on still doing like electric versions of some of their larger vehicles. So it's not that they're entirely saying we're not thinking about fuel efficiency at all. That's definitely not the case. And and as you said, a lot of these larger cars have become more fuel efficient. And and it's interesting when you're looking at oil prices, because recently we have seen, you know, a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a spike, but an increase in, in oil prices. And I think because of that, you've now had some people saying like, well, why is Ford doing this now? But I think overall, when you talk to a lot of people in the energy space, although I do think we could have a period in the next few years where definitely you could see oil getting a little bit higher. I don't think most people think we're ever going to get back to the old days because the market has just become so much more fractured. And as you start to have more renewables and more electric vehicles, it just seems like the days of 100 or 100 plus barrel of oil we may not be seeing anytime soon. Anna, do you mean that the uh, landscape has become more fractured because there's more fracking? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, exactly. That's it's it's very true. I mean, the U.S. is energy independent. We're producing so much, and I mean, and obviously exporting quite a bit of it. And this has just dramatically changed the energy landscape. OPEC still has a lot of power, as we've seen with what prices are, but they don't have the same power they had. So what happened the last time there was a uh, there was a spike in oil prices? Because uh, when I think back to like the 80s, when oil prices were really high, fuel efficiency wasn't really a selling point 
for Well, the vehicles. last time was much more recent than that. Mm-hmm. The last time was like in the mid-2000s. And you did see a massive rise in things like the Honda Fit. And there was a big move on the part of American manufacturers to start making small cars again. And the Mini came out. And, you know, it was a bit off. Yeah, the Mini was a bit different because that was always a bit of a gas guzzler. But, like, there were a bunch of small cars. That was when the Prius started becoming very popular as well. Um, Probably, I think Anna is right, that if you do see a spike in gas prices, that will give people a bit more incentive to buy electric cars and we are seeing more and more electric cars and um i'd actually be interested in asking you meredith like there's there's a strong correlation i would say between the degree of automation in a car and like how electrified that car is that um you know self-driving cars in particular are like uh computers on wheels but most cars are becoming computers on wheels and computers need a huge amount of electricity and so the more electric cars tend to be able to do more of that computery stuff um do you think that as ford and everyone else starts move starts producing more electric cars that those are going to be more automated more um like have more sort of self-driving capabilities Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I would also be curious about what impact that's going to have on the electrical grid. Right. So uh, as we've used more and more computers, we use more and more power, which you know, uh, causes us to uh, consume more and more. Is that right? I thought electricity consumption was not going up that much. My understanding is that it's gone up dramatically since uh, since we uh you know, since we started using our devices. Huh. Um, we should, we should look it up. We should look that yes. one up. <laughs> yeah. Um, at any rate, I, I would be curious about the impact on the electrical grid. And I, I don't know. I worry a lot about driving an electric car and running out of power. Range. What's it called? Range anxiety. Yeah. 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 I have a lot of range anxiety. <laughs> Um, I uh, I was on a plane yesterday and I had three devices on the plane and I ran out of power on all three devices and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know, although I, one thing I will say is that it's funny you bring that up because I feel like a number of years ago it was like an issue where if you were walking around and your cell phone it, like was going, you're like, I have no possibility of getting power anywhere. Whereas now I feel like a lot of stores, I've even seen in museums where people will plug in their, you know, their phones. You have to carry around a charger. But I do think that people's habits are changing and places that you can charge are increasing. And so I, I kind of think that if we shifted towards more and more electric cars, it would just be pretty natural that you would also have just more and more places where you could charge them. And then, and of course, like Elon Musk's answer to your question is like, I just merged Tesla with Solar X and and everyone, took on a lot of debt <laughs> and and everyone is going to um put solar panels up on their house to not only charge their cars but to actually give back to the grid. I don't know. We'll see. Um, that would be great. I am optimistic about uh, yeah, uh, about electric cars. Yeah, in general. Dan. What's the yeah? Did you look it up? So from about two thousand five onward, it's about level at like. 3.8 billion kilowatt hours. It increased steadily from like 75 to 2005 and then has leveled out since 2005. Turns out so, uh, that Felix so, is right <laughs> that electricity consumption has been steady uh, since about 2005. 
So for all of the new devices that we have, um, we aren't actually consuming more electricity, just presumably because they're becoming more efficient. That's great. Good job, device makers. Well done, device makers. Um, yeah. I mean, my, my, my favorite example of that is induction stovetops. Ooh, the induction stovetop. Tell us more, I guess. Um, so the induction stovetop is the greatest advance in kitchen technology. I can I can encourage anyone with too much money to go out and buy induction stovetops because they're wonderful. When they came out, they were just the most power-hungry things you could possibly imagine. Um, and a friend of mine, I remember he was moving into a new house and he bought an induction stovetop and because of construction problems, it took him a while to try and install it. And then after he couldn't return it anymore, they installed it and they said, oh my God, this thing needs 80 amps. We don't even have 80 amps for the entire house. We could like, And they just had this massively expensive induction stovetop they couldn't use. And now they're just using less and less electricity. And you know, I bought one which uses less than half that. And I'm sure they're becoming more and more efficient. There's something amazing about quiet improvements in efficiency, which people don't see, but they really do save a lot of money and carbon. Yeah. And those those very unglamorous improvements are so important mm-hmm. and they make our lives so much better. But like you can't, you know, you can't really put out a press release that's like, oh, yeah, we use half as many kilowatts. And like people are not going to get excited about that, mostly because people know what kilowatts are. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we have to talk about WeWork, yes, we which do. is which is basically the self-driving office. I, I this is my <laughs> I have this theory about WeWork, which is um, which is the companies have always had office managers, and that's never been a core competency of any of them. And the, the reason why WeWork is attractive is because they basically offer to companies like we will just do all of that crappy office management for you and you don't need to worry about it and you will pay the no- through the nose for us to do that for you and it- you will still feel better because it's just less for you to worry about and then that's how they differentiate themselves is by trying to persuade people that they're so much cooler and better that they are that they should just pay more for it because they- it's something they don't need to worry about and they'll get a high quality I think that's being very generous. I think <laughs> I think people are paying more because of the fake Eames chairs and the lighting and the beer and the the fruit yeah, but water. I, but that all is that's all included in what I call office management. Like it's like get, getting the architecture, getting the furniture, getting the coffee, getting the beer, getting the lighting, right, getting but that's all of that. The hard part about what office managers have to do on a daily basis. I, well, I and we, there yeah. and there are other companies like Regus, I believe, that does a very similar thing to WeWork. That is, just, but they just don't do it in a cool way. And that's the key here. Yeah, it's, the branding. WeWork is all about the branding. Yeah. they've uh, they've said, oh, we're this like hip co working community, and you know, it's just turnkey, and you can set it and forget it. Like it's very attractive to a lot of people. And it's yeah, it's a company that essentially all they do really is rent office space and they are valued like a tech company yeah i mean it's it's 
it's a magnificent con in some ways. Like, it, it's they've so, convinced everybody yeah. that real estate is somehow sexy. They what they haven't done is buy office space and rent it out. What they do is they rent office space and rent it out, and they and they try and make money on like the margin between how much they're renting it for and how you know how much they're paying and how much they're charging. Um, which in theory works, but you know, it hasn't been tested in a downturn and they have a bunch of super interesting financial engineering, um, which we are about to talk about because up, you know, like, like most fast growing startups, they basically funded themselves historically with equity and the people who bought shares, bought equity in WeWork have done very well for themselves as a general rule. Um, but now they're funding themselves with debt. Yep. And that's really fascinating because they're losing an astonishing amount of money. They lost a billion dollars last year on revenue of half that. Like for every dollar they take in, they spend $2. Yeah, they're burning through cash. And what's important here, if you're a creditor, is that they essentially have long-term liabilities. And now adding to this, whether you're talking about your leases and now you're talking about a seven-year bond, and they're funding this with short-term contracts. That is a classic duration mismatch that should scare you a little bit. And so part of the reason we're talking about this is they did just come this week to market with it was uh, sized up to a $702 million. Yeah, can I ask you about that? Sure. They, it was $500 million and then there was a lot of demand and so they increased it to 700 Wait, no, $702 million. $702. Like, yeah, that, that's $702 odd. is a weird that's number, odd. Right? That is odd. Yeah. Yeah, the, the two is definitely... The that, two that is, is like, wait, 750 I could understand. <laughs> right. 700 I could understand, but yeah. 702 Yeah, that is, that is odd. Um, so, so the interesting thing to me here is that well there are a lot of interesting things here. We're going to this is the we are going to be getting into the income statement, we're getting into the balance sheet right now. So, but this story, if you're talking about the debt story of why people would buy these bonds. The reason they're buying these bonds is that the debt story is fueled by the equity story. That this company is, you know, free cash flow negative, so you would think like why on earth would a would a creditor want to buy this? Well, two reasons. One is because there's a 7 and 7 eight coupon on it. And if you look at where similarly rated credits are, like those, it has like a single B rating, it's deep into junk. Territory. It is, but but that is you're getting a bigger spread than you normally. So right now the spread between um, like high yield and treasuries has shrunk. So you're actually getting some additional yield. You are paying up for the risk. So, but the key here is that if you're a creditor, you're saying, well, I know that this company like is not generating cash. However, I believe that they are such a darling of these like. Um, kind of private investors, that they'll be able to get the money. That is essentially, it's a growth story. Now, normally you don't think of fixed income investors buying into growth stories, but with a lot of these kind of quote-unquote tech companies or startups, that's really what's happening. Well, basically what what you're saying is that if push comes to shove and they need cash to pay their creditors, they can issue more equity. Exactly. That's this. It's And this is a similar story you hear with Tesla. This is a similar story you hear with Netflix. And I... I think there's a big difference, an important difference between WeWork and Tesla. And I know, you know, you have ranted in the past about Tesla bonds and Tesla is also losing lots of money. And it also doesn't make sense to lend money to a company which is losing money. But the big difference in my mind is that in extremis, there is a buyer for Tesla, that Ford will come along or Google will come along or someone somewhere will be willing to buy Tesla for more than the value of its debt. That 
you know, if Tesla goes bust, the bondholders still get paid because it has some kind of value in it has bankruptcy. assets. It has the, the, the value of the company is real somewhere. Yeah, I, Whereas WeWork, I don't think that's true. I think if WeWork suddenly, like, you know, implodes because the financial engineering no longer works, there's not much there there for anyone to buy. Yeah, they're, they're very asset light. If you look at the collateral they were using for their previous loans, they because as we've said, they don't own, they own some things, they have some capital leases, but they don't own many of these properties. So in the event of a bankruptcy, exactly what what really are you claiming? And and as you, I think we're saying previously that this is a company that has never been through an economic downturn. They have never experienced what happens when all of a sudden people aren't hiring, everyone's firing, everyone's cutting back costs. Like what happens when you've had this massive expansion that we've seen? And as I've said, this is one thing when you're funding yourself through equity, but when you're funding yourself through debt, that becomes a much bigger issue when you're not internally generating cash. And then, of course, the other thing which WeWork did, were, which which generally raises red flags and alarms, is this whole sort of earnings before everything metric that they came this was up amazing. with. Amazing. So, yeah. Meredith, like you can you can explain like maybe you can explain to us because I don't entirely understand it. Like, there's not people don't just look at earnings. They love to look at this other thing called EBITDA, which is earnings. You take a certain amount EBITDA. of expenses and you ignore them. Well, and, no, and, there's and, a reason the, for it. Right. Okay. So so that's the question. Like, which expenses is it reasonable to ignore when you're looking at earnings? And, the, and there seems to be this kind of broad consensus that EBITDA is a list of um, expenses which it's reasonable to ignore for these purposes. Sorry. Can I just? I, I, yes. there, there's a reason that um, so EBITDA really came um, to prominence in the 80s with the kind of LBO because the point of EBITDA initially was the idea of I want to th- see what cash is being generated that will allow me to pay my long-term debt. That was part of that's the whole reason that you originally would use that. So that's why you would take out things like interest because you're trying to figure out do I actually have enough cash to pay off my long-term debt? How much debt can I issue to? Um, like take over this company. That, that so, so what? So what is taken out of EBITDA? So interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. That is EBITDA. So Earnings what, before interest, tax, okay. depreciation. So, for instance, why why do I ignore interest expenses? Because the point is, you're trying to say, am I generating enough cash internally to pay my long term debt, which includes my interest expense? So okay, you're not so going. Why, why am I ignoring tax payments? So the tax payments is because taxes change all the time and. Well, okay. So partly it's because taxes just simply change all the time. It this is also goes into another reason why people actually use EBITDA, is that it's used. It's really good for comparing companies because if I want to compare the operational efficiency of companies, all companies have different cap structures. They have different tax issues because they either you know they lost money, they made money. So when you when you take those things out, you can more accurately compare. However, I do agree with you that EBITDA should not be used as uh, you know, like a proxy for free cash flow, because there are more important things that you aren't taking into account when you just use EBITDA. So in any case, there's this thing called EBITDA, which like, I think um, Anna has more time for than I do as a, as a, as a useful metric to measure something. Um, but WeWork came along with, with, what did they call it? Meredith, was it? Artisanally produced uh, <laughs> crowdsourced. As I say, yeah, the, like Crowd- the, the, the free range IBITA. Yeah. yeah, the community based IBITA. Community based. So, what, what on 
earth is this thing? And like, and how did they get away with this? Well, so one of the things I think was interesting about this situation is, uh, is the way that they're just making up a new metric and everybody's like, oh, hey, good idea. Well, well um, did anyone say, oh, hey, good idea? And, Anna? That, sorry, I don't mean yeah. to, I, but that is a, a fair point because I think this was the type of thing that I'm pretty sure everyone was like, that's ridiculous. Because this is the thing. When you're looking at financial statements, companies have all kinds of numbers they put on there and no one cares. <laughs> like the reason they put that number on there, I think, is that, well, partly because it's the only number they can put on that's positive, but is that they have this theory that if you know their economy goes down, they can really just cut CapEx, they can cut operational expenses to the bone. And so they're trying to make the argument of like, I'm just showing you how much money we create from revenues only taking out the money that we have to pay to like keep the lights on. So and they're trying to say that they're partly they're saying that we can cut expenses so far that this is a not more accurate, but we are trying to show our essentially operational efficiency, which is ridiculous because they still would have to do all of the other yeah. general so expenses. Basically, the, the implication behind this number is that if they stopped all of their marketing expenses, then basically what they're saying is that the marketing expenses are only being used to fill new spaces and they're not being used in any way to keep the current tenants in the current spaces or to refill current spaces as tenants move out, which is kind of bonkers. Um, and so, yeah, so the the they put this ridiculous thing, which I kind of feel that like everyone understands is ridiculous in their bond prospectus. Um, and the question is, why? Is it because some people do buy into it? or I think we're in a moment right now where people are obsessed with metrics. And it's kind of like if you if you come up with a new metric that seems plausible, people are like, oh, okay, sure. So like in the uh, in the web world, like first we were really obsessed with page views, and then we were really obsessed with uh, unique visitors, and then uh, Chartbeat came along, and they were like, well, you know, that's not really what we should focus on. Let's look at uh, at time spent on the page, and so people have always tried to come up with something like some kind of number that. It represents reality in some more accurate way and somehow we've gotten into this thing where like you can just you can just say oh yeah now we're doing it this way and a certain number of people are going to believe you about it yeah i mean i think when you're trying to you know raise debt you want people to invest in your company you need to create a narrative you need a story and if you look at their financials they don't have a lot of great stories so they're trying to create something and but as I think you've uh, Meredith noted that we had this faith in numbers that like, well, if I see it in a number in you know Excel spreadsheet, it must be true. And it's like, well, no, you can make numbers say anything you want. And this is a perfect example of that. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. Technology and politics are moving closer and closer together. And I think it is important or to take a look at the power and influence that Amazon has. And these big tech companies aren't just shaping debate, they're shaping the way we live and work. This was a huge breach of trust. People come to Facebook every day and they depend upon us to protect their data. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. We're the hosts of If Then, Slate's new podcast that decodes the heavy tech news flying out of Washington, Silicon Valley, and beyond. Every week, we bring you up to speed on everything from the Russian hacking scandal to the machines that help decide your local voting maps. Find If Then wherever you get your podcasts. 
Okay, let's have a numbers round. Talking about numbers, which 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 you can make to say anything you want. Um, Anna, what is your number which you're going to make to say anything you want? Yes, uh, my number is fifty one percent. So. There is a statistic that during the last election people love to talk about, which was the idea that median household income had not increased pretty much at all since 1979. And the CBO just came out with a new number that shows that might not actually be true. They're showing that it has increased by 51%. Now... (laughs) I think that may be a little on the high end. It's kind of interesting how they came to this. Like partly it was because they accounted for changes in household size, but probably most importantly, they're using a different measure of inflation. They're using actually what um, what the Fed uses, which takes into account not only things that you buy, but things that are bought on your behalf, like health insurance. It also is a is an after tax and transfer. So, but the point of this, it's it's actually really interesting. I would highly recommend people looking into it. But it goes back to what we we're talking about with this idea that numbers can kind of mean lots of different things, that there was this number that everyone liked to talk about saying, you know, it hasn't increased at all. And then now it's like, well, no, actually, it's numbers are more complicated than they look. Um, Meredith, what's your number? My number is three. Three is the number of people who have been killed in self-driving cars. <laughs> well, it seems low yeah. compared to like, the number of people who've been killed in non-self-driving cars. Uh, it has tripled from, uh, <laughs> from, from what it was before. When it was one. It, it was, was zero one. before, and now it's three. Um, my num- I can't work out. Okay, um, I'm g- Meredith, I'm going to give you the choice here. Do you want a John Bates Clark economics number or do you want an amazon number oh i want an amazon number please okay so in that case my number is 21.7 billion dollars and that is the amount of money that amazon spent on shipping in 2017 wow yeah they spent over 20 billion dollars just shipping stuff around and this is like the this is the sort of huge cost that people don't appreciate is is part is just like built into the amazon business model everyone's like well retailers can't compete with amazon because amazon doesn't have to pay rent well amazon has to pay 21 billion dollars in shipping costs which is you know you can rent just about any retail space you want for that kind of money so that i you know that one fascinated me especially in the context of the amazon earnings which just came out blowout earnings um, record high earnings for Amazon. They've never made so much money ever. Um, they, over the past 12 months, made $3.9 billion over the past 12 months, which you can kind of compare that to the $21 billion they they spent on shipping, and you can see how narrow their margins are. I mean, it's AWS where they really make most of their money. They, they make, yeah, well, we don't know. <laughs> they don't break that out. No. To make a lot of money off of me on AWS. <laughs> <laughs> How much do you spend on AWS? Uh, about $1,000 a month. Oh, well. Does NYU pay for that? Yes. Good for them. Thank you, NYU, for paying Meredith's um, exorbitant AWS, bills. Thank you. A- exorbitant AWS bills. Um, thank you to Dan Schrader for producing this uh, awesome show. Um, thank you to Meredith, mostly, for just turning up and being awesome. We're going to have a Sleep Plus Plus segment on how to work out which school children go to which school. And um, so listen to that if you're a Slate Plus member. Otherwise, 
Keep the emails coming to slatemoney at slate.com, and we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. <laughs>